This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 28. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show Twenty Eight, and I'm your host, Joshua Dorkin, here with my co-host Brandon Turner. What's doing, Brandon? You're on vacation, huh? Uh, I guess you could say that. I'm out in uh, Chelan, Washington, right now, Lake Chelan, beautiful area, and it's like 99 degrees today. And I'm going jet skiing later. Nice, nice. So Chelan is that? Uh, where, where in Washington is that? Kind of eastern Washington, maybe central. Eastern, yeah. uh, it's it's over the mountains, so it's hot and deserty and beautiful. Nice, nice. Any any good real estate opportunities in Chelan? I don't know, but I actually know a guy once who who was a hard money lender, and he took back like a hundred acre property out here for like millions of dollars. So I think it's spendy, but nice. I don't know. Nice. I try. I tr- as much as I I try to resist the urge to go look at houses on vacation, but yeah. <laughs> but I always like drive by anyway, and I'm constantly checking out. I mean, my my wife and I joke about that all the time. I'm sure our listeners probably do the same thing. It's it's a habit, but yeah, yeah, that's it's an addiction, man. The it real is. estate game is an addiction for sure. Well, uh, let's uh, let's jump really quick to our quick tip. Well, today's quick tip is check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com/slash bigger pockets uh, to learn more about uh, real estate investing. We got lots of great videos, uh, some old uh, old ones that uh, that I shot back in the day when. Uh, yeah, and they're they're not that good. <laughs> no, they're good. I, the quality like is the, good the, the of qual- content. Yes, they don't. You don't have my fancy camera that I use today with the blurry background and the the high def seven twenty p. You know, yeah, you know. But that's you don't right. have to show off. <laughs> no, seriously, like it's not a competition. Oh, man. oh, it is. My my camera is way better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's a pissing contest, people. <laughs> All right, oh, moving moving on. Moving on. So today we've got uh, we, we've got a really great guest. Uh, we've got Dave Van Horn. I'll talk about him in a second. Um, but but we're doing something a little bit different with today's show. We we thought that we would we kind of raise raise the game a little bit. We've done a ton of really good shows about getting started and and introductory topics. Today we thought we'd kind of jump out of of our comfort zone and hopefully put a lot of you out of your comfort zones and uh, talk about uh, some some other things. Uh, in particular, we're talking about notes today, but. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, so Dave, Dave's an experienced investor from from Pennsylvania, and he's done he's done pretty much everything that you can do in real estate, including uh, property management, buy and hold, uh, a lot more. But he currently focuses heavily on something that I know that I want to personally learn a lot more about, and and I know uh, you also want to learn about. Correct, Brandon. Definitely, definitely. Because it's kind of like the ideal is to eventually kind of transition to notes. I think a lot of investors, that's kind of the end game. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to learn more. So, so we're going we're gonna to learn more about the topic of notes. That's right. And uh, so, so Dave is the president of PPR Note Company. And uh, he also writes on the Bigger Pockets blog uh, weekly. Uh, he puts out some really, really great content. I, I definitely recommend checking out uh, his posts and, of course, all the other posts we put out on the Bigger Pockets blog every day. Uh, today, we're going to cover the topic of raising money, uh, which is uh, which is going to be valuable for for both the new investors and the experienced investors. And uh, we're also going to get into some. 
uh, in-depth conversations on notes as well, along with a lot of random other uh, interesting uh, topics. So, so uh, you know, why don't we jump in really quickly? This is show 28 of the Bigger Pockets podcast, and uh, you can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 28. Listen, it's not coffee or donuts. It's not campfires or s'mores, not peanut butter or jelly. Great things happen when two good things come together. So why choose between cash flow or appreciation? Rent to Retirement's new construction homes give you both. Rent to Retirement offers newly built homes that attract the best tenants with fewer repairs in outstanding rental markets. That means more monthly cash flow for you and plenty of equity growth in the background. Plus, their creative financing options let you buy investment properties with just 5% down. Not 20%, not 10%, 5% down. Renter Retirement offers turnkey new construction homes already built, leased, and managed for you. Their investing experts find the best markets that consistently offer double-digit returns and prices as low as $150,000. And they've got more five-star reviews than any company on Bigger Pockets. You invest, Rent to Retirement does the rest. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Are you serious about making real profits from your investment properties? Then why are you paying a property manager anywhere from 8 to 25% of your rent? Cut your expenses the savvy way by self-managing your rentals using RentReady with flat rate pricing that doesn't cut into your bottom line. You think I'm paying a property manager? Heck no. Get your hands off my cash flow. That's me slapping someone's hand. With RentReady, you can collect rent, screen tenants, track repairs, and manage accounting all from your phone. Are you a Bigger Pockets Pro member? Well, guess what? RentReady is already included in your membership. Haven't tried it yet? Well, then what the heck are you waiting for, man? We made this possible specifically for you, Bigger Pockets Pro member. If you're not a pro, RentReady is offering you 50% off their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2023. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot com using code BP2023. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, you know, the podcast that you're listening to right now, in the year 2023 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. Cut your expenses when you use Rent Ready to manage your rentals. Sign up today at rentready.com and use code BP2023. Mr. Dave, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thanks, uh, Josh. Uh, glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, why don't we just jump right in onto this? Uh, why don't you tell us your story? How did you? Uh, how'd you get started in real estate? Um, actually, my mom convinced me. I, after college, I couldn't get a job, and I moved in with my mother, with my wife and kid. 
And you know how that goes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I was working in construction and uh, my mom said, why don't you try real estate? And I uh, was doing that at night and on weekends and went and got my license. And, uh, you know, fast forward a few years, I was um, taking real estate classes on investing in real estate. And the guy said, who in here owns a credit card? And how come you're not buying houses with them? And back then, this is, you know, back in 1989. And, and they were like, credit cards didn't have the cash advance fees like they do today. Yeah, so it was like, it was like real easy to get cash. Um, so I started out literally buying houses with credit cards. I wow. would uh, write myself two cash advance checks and go buy a house. I think the first house I bought was like 13 grand. Nice. And wow. um, go buy the house, fix it up with a credit card. I think I was all in for about 18 grand. And then I moved the tenant in and I went down to the bank and they go, it's worth like 41 or something. And they gave me <laughs> a loan for like 25 grand. And um, I got the 25 grand, paid off the 18 grand in, on the credit cards. And then um, I pocketed the difference because it was tax free. And I was still cash flowing like a couple hundred a month, 300 a month, I think. So up up until a few years ago, I just sold that property. So, um, you know, I kept it for a rental for a good long period of time. The market jumped up and I sold a few of my rentals. Nice, nice. Um, well, so I, I actually ask- went, I went out and repeated that too. You know, I just kept doing that over and over and I actually got my first, I'd say nine or 10 properties that way. How did how, how do you find a property for what was it eighteen or fourteen the original price where 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 is that is that in, uh, in- I actually yeah I was, I was I'm outside Philadelphia and um, I actually found that in a, a for sale by owner in the newspaper it was just a guy I was reading the ads and even though I was a realtor at that particular house I found out of the paper um, and the guy was asking like twenty and I offered I remember offering him eight thousand I thought he was going to choke uh, <laughs> after I revived them. Well, what's that old saying? If your uh, if if your offer's not too low, <laughs> if, if they're not uh, screaming, your offer's too high. Yeah. But the uh, no, he uh, we ended up meeting in the middle and uh, actually got the house for thirteen. Wow, that's wow. Uh, and that was that was one of my first, you know, official really, you know, gutting the house pretty well and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, you know, went on from there. And then. Um, Fast forward several years, um, I, I actually had gotten up to 40 units, and along the way, I started to utilize lines of credit, and I started putting lines of credit on my apartment buildings and my houses, and I actually got up to about 11 lines of credit. Wow. So how I st- started in the note business was um, I was having, tr- having trouble getting money. Uh, I got to a certain point. You know how if you buy, if you have 20 mortgages in your own name back then? Well, now it's four. Yeah. But at one time it was 10 and at one time it was 20. You could actually have 20 mortgages in your own name. And um, I got to a point where I couldn't get financing. So I joined a local RIA group. And up until that point, I didn't really network very well. And then once I joined the RIA group, I actually got not only did I get money, I got into the note business because I found out I could use private money and people would lend me private money to acquire my deals. And then I started lending other people money. So I would uh, lend fellow rehabbers, we'd lend each other money from our lines of credit or from our IRA accounts. Right. And um, so I started out with first mortgages, uh, very safe deals, um, you know, 65% loan to value, that kind of thing. Uh, And I was lending money to my friends. I was lending money in a county where I bought real estate all the time. So I knew the market value. I knew the properties. And uh, I also had my own crew. So if I had to take a property back, 
not that I ever did, um, I would, you know, was ready to go jump in there and finish the project or something. So I was like, um, we called it soft hard money. Okay, yeah. Uh, so the the rates weren't as high as the hard money guy, and me and my buddies would lend each other money to do our deals. And some of my real good friends have eighty and a hundred houses. And um, oh. as I start, I was on the same path. I got up to like forty units, like I was saying. But then I was like, I like this hard money thing. I like these mortgages. I like these notes uh, because I was doing both. And I was a property manager at Remax, and I was going to court all the time, probably monthly. Uh, once or twice a month, I'd be in court because I was uh, managing about 100 units for other people. And um, just from going to court all the time and things like that, I liked the idea of owning the mortgages versus the properties because I was well on my way to have 100 houses, you know? Yeah. And um, I liked the idea of doing the private money, and it, it seemed easier to me uh, without tenants and contractors and things. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper on the, on the note investing. Cause, um, honestly, like not a lot of people know a whole lot about what exactly note investing is. So can you kind of explain like, I guess, how, what is it exactly? Like what's a note deal? How do you do it? What do you start with those kind of, you know, the details? Well, for me in the beginning, it was easy because I was originating the note. So I would call the term, you know, all the terms I was lending the money. So I was calling the terms. I was a partner in a title company. So I ran everything through my title company. Uh, but really, it comes down to when you're buying an existing loan, um, most of the time it's through the seller-financed world where you're buying a private mortgage off somebody and you're hopefully getting that at a discount. Um, but a lot of times when people start out in the note business, I ask them, are you an active investor or are you passive? You know, Do you want to be a guy that collects payments or do you want to buy you know, delinquent loans? Those kinds of things. So it depends on how much time people have and how much capital they have, that kind of thing. So why, but, uh, so why do people, I mean, why you said most of the notes come from like the seller financed world. Why would somebody sell a note? I mean, if I were to, if I were to do a mortgage for somebody, you know, I owned a house free and clear and I were to sell that um, property to somebody and carry the note. Why would I then sell it to a guy like you for a discount? Well, it, it's a function that they just want the money or they need the money. And most of those uh, folks that are in the seller finance space do a lot of marketing to acquire those notes off people who might need the money. So they might have held a mortgage just to sell the property. Maybe it was a challenging property to sell. And because they offered financing, it was more palatable. So they offered financing or they might have held a second mortgage or they might have held a first just to sell the property. So now they sell the property and they go, I really don't want this mortgage. I really wanted the money, you know, and, and they'll sell the mortgage. And sometimes they'll sell part of the mortgage too, like a partial. So. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So let, let's, let's jump into that a little bit. I mean, so they're selling a, a note. What's, what's kind of a, an average discount? Obviously you're not paying full price for a note. So, you know, say a note costs, a, you know, $10,000. What, what do you pay for that note? <laughs> well, to be honest with you, it's not a space that I play in today, but most, from what I do know, uh, most first mortgages today are probably trading at around 70 to 80 cents on the dollar. Um, and they usually want equity too. So they're looking at equity, they're looking at pay history, they're looking at job, they're looking at sort of like an originator of a loan would look at it. They're looking at all the criteria. Gotcha. And you had, you had mentioned terms earlier. Um, can you explain kind of what that is for, for anybody listening? And of course, uh, what, what are the key terms that, that typically you would want in your favor versus uh, the, the other party? 
Well, most of the time it's, you know, how many years do you want the mortgage? If you're doing a private mortgage, a lot of times you'll see them where they have a balloon in five or seven or 10 years because the person giving the mortgage really doesn't want to hold the mortgage a long period of time. So sometimes it's quite, you know, easy to see a five-year balloon. Um, I actually sold a property I had to a buddy of mine and I carried a second mortgage and it was, uh, trying to remember, it was like 12% with a five-year balloon interest only. So he was able to buy my property with no money out of pocket, no settlement costs, because the second mortgage covered the costs of the additional down payment that you know the first mortgage required. So he basically walked in, took the keys, walked out, cash flowed with no money into the deal because I held the second mortgage. And um, I actually still hold it today, and, and I had a balloon on it. You know, in five years, he's supposed to take me out. So, gotcha. you know, it's a great way to sell a property with no money down. All right. So, so what are you doing to you, you? What are you doing today? You said you're not buying those notes on uh, the, the notes that we're talking about, just uh, on on a secondary market. What uh, what what do you do? What's your you know strategy in in the note space? Well, today I buy mostly delinquent mortgages in bulk from banks, and I got into that. Uh, area by accident. I was actually um, running a mastermind group and I would interview speakers. And one of the speakers was a gentleman out of Manhattan and he came down to speak to our group and he was doing a cash call to raise capital to buy pools of delinquent mortgages. And um, of course, I didn't do anything for two or three years. and But my partner, John, did. My partner invested some money in this note fund and this guy always paid a nice return. And then a couple of years went by and we said, hey, why don't you teach us this collection side of the delinquent mortgage business and we'll buy loans from you. And he agreed to do it. He taught about a dozen of us the business. And um, the rest is kind of history. We started in 2007 with four mortgages, mostly second mortgages, and uh, they were all delinquent. And today we own several thousand and we actually are just under a half a billion dollars in payoff wow which is pretty significant yeah so you said earlier you're buying delinquent notes notes i'm assuming that like is that the same as non-performing yes okay so yes, what we buy the, first those are people behind seconds, but, but predominantly seconds we buy so. okay so those are people that are behind in their too. their mortgages then yes they're trading at pretty good discounts uh to give you a little perspective uh first mortgages mostly are trading between 45 and 65 cents wow. on the dollar uh, second mortgages will trade. Most of what we buy today is between three cents and twenty cents. Wow! On the dollar, uh, so wow! Dollar. So it's pretty significant. Uh, but we do also see a lot of upside down mortgages, and uh, but we do have ways of generating revenue from those. So it's interesting. Pretty so, interesting. So what do you do when you have a bad? I mean, when you have a bad note that you buy, how do you how do you make money off that? I mean, if they're not paying, are they they're not paying you either? I'm assuming. Do you just you know kick them out, foreclose? How does that work? <laughs> it's funny that you say that. My my partner always has a, uh, a line. He says, "There's no such thing as a bad note, just a bad price." Right? Oh yeah. Uh, well, you're paying so, for the risk, right? Yes, you are, and it becomes more statistical. And um, you know, in real, you know, a lot of real estate guys, myself included, you're always buying. You know, they like first mortgages. They like to be in first position. They like equity. They like uh, the property to be occupied if they can get it. And then they like geography too. They're geographic buyers. Um, a lot of people that buy commercial notes, 
or who buy first mortgages or geographic buyers because a lot of times they don't mind getting their property. When we buy second mortgages, we buy in all 50 states, we're in all, or all over the country, and we probably own 20 or 30 houses at any given time through like REO. Um, not that we want them, but we end up with them. And, um, and, and we, but that's our worst case scenario. So it's kind of the opposite of a real estate investor who's trying to get a property. We're trying to not get the property, but we get them anyway. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Whether we want them or not, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's, I want to go a little bit deeper on this because I'm really fascinated by this. So you buy a property, let's just say you buy, okay, a consumer takes out a loan for $100,000 on a house. Then they yes. stop paying and the bank, you know, is it before the foreclosure or after the foreclosure do they sell it? I mean, like at what point do they sell the it, loan? Usually it's before the foreclosure and we're buying them from a trade desk. Like we don't buy from loss mitigation. We're buying from a loss um, from a trade desk and they package up those loans in bulk. Um, you know, like we just had a package of 1400 loans and some packages we can cherry pick and buy a couple hundred of those assets or we might have to take the baby in the bathwater and buy the whole pool. And then, uh, but so we do a lot of analytics and we know statistically what the outcomes will be before we buy just from past history. Uh, but you're, part of what you're saying is why does a bank, well, think about it this way. If I had a $40,000 second mortgage, say, and the bank originated that, you, they're in into the loan for the full amount, right? Yep. But they sell it to me at a fraction. Say I buy that for five or 10 grand. Well, I could do a lot of things with that borrower that the bank kind of couldn't do. So the bank's conversation with a borrower might be pay up or get out, whereas my conversation is, hey, what happened? Where are you at now? What would you like to do? Uh, I'm your advocate. Let's try to craft a plan whether you want to stay or go. Meanwhile, legal's moving forward. So the bad guy down the hall, legal's pushing forward. So you have to make a decision of what you want to do. And then, and then we like tell them stories of people we helped. And then we go down a series of options because we want it to be their plan. It's really not about what I want because I need their buy-in if it's going to be successful. Well, that makes sense. Well, let me ask this. I mean, so at that point, if you're paying, you know, 5000 on a $40,000 note, you have the option of dropping their payments significantly and still being ahead of the game. Absolutely. Yes. Oh. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples of what we would do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what's, our hardest thing is getting a hold of them. So we do a mail campaign, a phone campaign. We'll even send a door knock to them and it'll be somebody on the other end, you know? Yeah. So uh, it'll be, hey, we've been trying to reach you. And the interesting thing is once we do get a hold of them and we have that conversation of what happened, where you're at now, that what would you like to do? We start to tell them stories, you know, like, hey, I helped this family out in Oregon. Uh, they were able to access their 401k and I saw a corporate accept a discounted payoff. Is that something that would interest you? Like if corporate accepted 20 grand to make the 40 go away, you know, you could access your 401k penalty free while you're in foreclosure and they might go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Or they might say, oh, I don't have a retirement account. And then we would come to the next stage and we'd go, well, great. Maybe you're qualified for our friends and family program. You know, we had a, um, an uncle, an uncle of a borrower in Delaware lend his niece the money uh, and we PPR sold the loan to him. So you could see where would the uncle be more inclined to lend the money to his niece if he got a secured lien, which and that's something a bank would never do because it's an arm's length transaction. So we're not as regulated as a bank and we can do those types of 
creative transactions. And, you know, Uncle Louie, he might have lent his niece the money anyway, but he might be more inclined to lend her the money if he has a lien on her house. Now, the borrower might say, I don't have any friends or family. Everybody hates me. <laughs> well, great. Maybe you're qualified for our discounted arrears program, um, you know, where we could, you know, they might have not made a payment for three years or five years, and they might owe $10,000 in arrears. And a lot of times we can discount those arrears. And usually the more uh, cash they can put towards arrears, the lower we can lower their payment or their interest rate or lengthen their term. And a lot of people have income tax checks or something like that where they can put it towards arrears. So now they might say, you know, I don't have anything to put towards arrears. Well, then we start to go down the path of, you know, cash for keys, seller assist, deed in lieu. Well, those other options don't look so bad, right? If they want to stay there. Yeah. Um, especially if they're current on their first mortgage. If they're current on their first mortgage, they're telling you two things. They're telling you they have a source of income and that they want to stay. So to us, senior lien status is more important than equity when you're dealing with second mortgages. Do you deal? Kinda, yeah, I was going to say, do you deal mostly with second mortgages? Mostly we do because, um, well, it was the space we started out in and we just learned it. And um, it's a lower price point and more upside once you learn to manage the risk. Yep. Uh, there's nothing wrong with first mortgages. They're actually easier. They just take more capital. Hey, so you, you know, you, you just said, hey, you're going to go and you, you're going to buy this pool of twelve hundred, fourteen hundred uh, from from the bank. That I mean, that's a lot of inventory to instantly start managing. I mean, you must have a, a fairly significant team to be able to manage uh, that many notes. You you are correct. I mean, we have twenty three people right now. Yeah, uh, full time, uh, twenty one or full time. But you're you're right. I mean, but we didn't start out that way. Right, I started right. out with a computer and a magic jack working out of my house. So it was it wasn't that I always had this big staff no, that course. I do today. So, of course, but, of course. Well, well can we? Yeah, I was going to say, can we? Can we jump back to the very beginning? Because you know, we've definitely talked about a couple of things that I think are fairly sophisticated, and I'd like to say take a guy like me who's never invested in notes or, you know, one of our many, many listeners who probably are thinking, wow, well, this is scary now. This is, you know, could be cool. I don't have to manage tenants, but um, how do I get involved, right? So, you know, somebody wants to get started in investing in notes. What, what does that look like? Where do they go? How do they find notes? What's kind of the process from, all right, I want to be a note investor to, cool, I just got my first I'm gonna I'm gonna target performing or non-performing. I got my first one. Now what? Just sit back and collect the cash. Uh, walk us through a little <laughs> bit of that. Well, there, there's you know I think of about three three different ways someone could get started. Right? Okay. They could they could originate their own loan, doing a private mortgage for a rehab loan, like I did, or you know, which is tough, right? Uh, the second way would be to market for a loan, like the seller finance guys do. And then the third way is to buy a loan from a servicing company like my company or, you know, there's a million servicers out there that sell loans or they have a trading platform for loans uh, to sell even on a one-off basis. There's places that sell individual loans and um, you can have someone manage that loan. Like I have a servicer that manages my personal loans because I buy loans too. Yeah. Well, my 80-year-old mother has loans that she owns. Um, and what's nice about having a servicer manage your loans, like the servicer I use, is only $15 a month. 
Uh, they wire the money, the payment into your account every month or into your IRA account every month. And it's very hands off. And, you know, I think about my own wife who says, you know, don't you die and leave me all that junk property you own. But she, <laughs> but she never says that about my notes. She sees the money getting wired into the account every month, ACH, and she never complains about that. Nice, <laughs> so nice, nice. so it, it's all on how you look at it, I guess. I've kind of a general question then about that. Like, and I know this isn't really easy to answer, but how, how, like how much money do you make? I mean, not personally, like how do you make money off notes? I mean, like what uh, percentage do you make? What kind of returns do you get? Like what can a person expect versus like flipping or wholesaling? Well, I, I can tell you just from most of the performing notes that we sell, most of them are in a range between a 15 to 20% return, plus they have a kicker. So could I give you a little example, maybe? Uh, that would yes, be awesome, please. yeah. So if we bought a loan for five or 10 grand that had a payoff of 25 or 30 grand, we would smile and dial and do our routine and get that reperforming say. And then we would turn around and sell that loan for about 17 or 18 grand. And it would have a payment of maybe 275, 300 a month on that, that would generate that you know, 15 to 20% return in that range. And the kicker would come in is the difference between the payoff and what you bought the loan for. So if the payoff was 25 grand and you bought the loan for 18 grand, that difference would be what we call a kicker because you never know when a borrower is going to take you out and refinance, sell the property, whatever that is. So you're making a nice return while you're waiting to get, you know, full payment. You know, some of these go for 20 and 30 years and, um, you know, it's just a nice investment. Now, one of the things my company does is we warranty that investment principle. So if you bought a loan for 18 grand from us and you collected three grand in payments and then it hiccuped and stopped paying, we would actually step back in and try to get a re-performing re again. If we couldn't, we'd replace you with a cre note credit towards another note. So it's a pretty, we would give you a no credit in that case for like 15 grand. Like an insurance we, policy, essentially. Like an insurance, it, it's the best marketing we ever did. Yeah. To, you know, sell notes because think about what we're selling. Sure, it's a little bit of a uh, outside the box, right? It's a reperforming second mortgage that a lot of people would not be interested in investing in. But when you provide a warranty or something, they're more inclined to say, "Hey, yeah, I might try that and and go in and and do it that way." So it's a very passive way to invest in a reperforming mortgage. We also warranty our first mortgages too, so it's a nice uh, peace of mind that people don't have to worry about because. I don't think you can buy the perfect mortgage or create the perfect mortgage because bad things happen to good people. And when you think about the four main reasons people default, it's job loss, health, divorce. What's the other one? Medical. Yeah. And, you know, unless it's a strategic default or something, but you get the idea. Yeah. Well, so I'm coming in here. I'm, I'm interested in buying notes. You know, I've got, uh, you know, 5,000 bucks saved up. Is that is that enough, or or do I need you know what do you, uh, presumably your company has some sort of minimums? I uh, what's what what does somebody need to start investing in notes with? How much money? Most reperforming mortgages that we sell are between ten and thirty grand. You, but then again, I've bought loans for eighty dollars too, but they were dangerous loans, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. It's all relative, but yes, you can buy loans pretty cheap and you can even buy first cheap because the lower, uh, so I'll give you an example. First mortgages over 150,000 tend to trade at a premium. 
mortgages under that trade less. So if you get below 75,000, they discount them. If you get below 45,000, they discount them even more. So it's almost like the market sets the pricing, not so much what do I want to go buy a note at. You, you know, although we bid on them, the market kind of gives you color as to what they're trading at. Do you think it's a bad idea to just buy one note? Since, I mean, notes are a little bit, like it sounds like maybe a little bit risky. Is it bad to buy only one or do you get your security by having dozens and dozens of them? You know, it's great that you say that because um, sometimes I'll joke with folks who say, why don't you buy more first mortgages? And I'll make the comment, well, they're too risky. And they start laughing and they go, well, it's first mortgages. Why are they more risky? And it's because I have more exposure in one deal. Okay. So if I buy a delinquent first mortgage for 50 to 100 grand, to your point, I could go buy between about eight and 20 second mortgages. So I can spread my risk amongst many deals. Um, you know, my average loan might be five grand as opposed to a large amount. You know what I mean? And then I don't have that much risk in any one deal. Okay. Gotcha. 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 All right. And so what happens then if you've got one of these seconds or first and they, they do, they stop paying and, and they don't want to go through, you know, any of your, your secondary channels for getting out and you have to foreclose. Then you actually have to go through the whole process and deal with all the headaches that come with that. And essentially the note just stops paying off. Correct. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of strategies. We we actually have about 40 law firms throughout the country that work for us. So we initiate foreclosure uh, probably on close to half our portfolio, but we actually foreclose on less than 10%. It's around 8%. So we're really foreclosing on a small number when you consider how many loans we buy. Yeah. That's so surprising. I would, um, I would imagine a lot higher than that. So that's cool. We even get, a lot of times we even get a workout done with a borrower post foreclosure sale especially in second mortgage world. They just can't believe you can foreclose from second position. And a lot of times when we're, it comes to the point where we're putting a sale sign in their lawn or our sheriff's going there to eject that they realize, oh my gosh, they can foreclose. <laughs> and we get a workout done and deed it back to them a lot of times. So, so, yeah. so when you foreclose on a second mortgage, then you have to, and you go to the, the county or whatever, and you do all the work, you have to pay off the first mortgage then, right? Or how, do, how does that work? No, we don't. Uh, we're Typically, uh, we would get a sheriff's deed, and the first mortgage is still there. So we took over subject to that first. Uh, so the first mortgage is still there. It's in the original borrower's name. We have a couple options where we could, if the first started to foreclose against us, we could reinstate it, we could pay it off, or we could just let them go. Sometimes there are some states where we would rent the property out and just wait on the first. Like if you're in a long state, you could uh, you know, just turn around and rent it out and, and recoup your note money. So there's, there's a couple ways. Sometimes we'll reinstate the first and just keep making payments and keep it as a rental. So who's, who owns... At that point, who actually, who's the owner of the property? We are. We're the owner after the foreclosure sale. Yeah. You, the second holder, is the owner after the foreclosure yes. sale. Yes. Now that would and we have, certain, we have certain rights in those states, too, because we, we're a secured lien holder. We have, like, reinstatement rights and things like that. So a lot of people aren't aware that they, a lot of people think you have to pay that first off in full. We very rarely pay a first, and we very, very rarely make a payment to a first, to be honest with you. Occasionally, we'll bring a first current. 
so that they have to start their foreclosure over again to give us time to sell the property or fix it up and sell it, that kind of thing. Interesting. So when you're, I mean, I'm just kind of showing my ignorance here with all this stuff, but so, uh, hey, man, I'm I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> you're fine, guys. This is, I mean, this is you know, it's some fairly fairly complicated if it's something you're not familiar with. Yeah. So so when you buy a you buy this property, uh, a second mortgage, you foreclose, you take over. Um, there's still a f- first that's there, and yes. let's say. Especially like in today's market where the things are lower than they used to be. What do you do if you're underwater then at that point? What if the first mortgage is higher than, you know, what, do you, what, what are your options? Well, you're bringing up a, a good point. Like the cheapest, like a lot of people don't realize in second mortgage world, there's multiple categories, right? And they're priced accordingly. And the cheapest, most dangerous category is where the first mortgage is delinquent 120 plus days and they're not paying the second mortgage. We typically buy that for two and a half or three cents in quantity. So it's a cheap note to begin with. Now, there's three ways people make money on that note. One is through a short sale. They'll call you up to just get you to sign off. And you can easily get 2500 to 8500 We usually average about 10% of our face value of that note for a short sale. Uh, the second way is they're reporting a false negative to credit on the senior lien because they're doing a loan mod. So there's a lot of loan mods going on out there, but the credit report shows that they're late and they're really not late. They're so they, the first mortgage won't report to credit for maybe a year or two. And the whole time the people are making a payment. So it's almost like a good note, you know, that they're current on their first. So they're good deals. So the third option is you would take the property in foreclosure and then you would have an option of, do I pay the first or don't I? But meanwhile, you're renting it. And you're not running it to the original people that were living there, right? No, not normally, no. All right. Now, can the, can the first bank then – they because you said they can foreclose on you because uh, – because where does the uh, – what's that called? The uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Where they can foreclose because the title was transferred. Um, oh, a do a sale clause? Yeah, yeah, so where does the do on sale clause take <laughs> – we, we laugh at those. No. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's sure they can exercise the due and sale clause, but then they got to start the foreclosure process, which they could do anyway. So it's okay, foreclose. Because it's not our credit, they're just coming after the property. And then we can usually stop them. The, the only time it's, I think I had one case in six years where it was difficult to stop the first from allowing us to reinstate. And that was because the borrower was deceased. So usually as long as that borrower, you know, because think about it, they don't care who's paying them or who's bringing their loan current because now they have a good loan on their books as opposed to a delinquent asset. So can I, as as an individual, individual investor, let's say I find a second mortgage uh, for, I don't know, let's say $10,000 that I can buy it for. And the first is for like 50, let's say. So we got a total of 60 into it. Can I then foreclose on that person, kick them out of the house? And then rent it out to somebody else and just cash flow and just rock that loan then for the next, you know, 10, 20 years of my life. Sure. There's, I mean, yes, you can. Okay. In so that- fact, uh, we call that the Southern California model, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where you'll see, you see it more, con- like everybody has a different model, right? Our model's one way, there's other models. But here's a common model where they'll buy a high-end second for a low price. So I'll give you a quick example. It was a million-dollar property in the heyday. But now it's worth seven hundred grand, and the first mortgage is six hundred grand. 
you know, and you have the capability of buying that second mortgage, uh, say it's 300,000 for 25 grand. So now the second mortgage is in your back pocket and then you're able to try to get a short sale done on the first um, or just go in and, you know, sell the property that way. And now you got a great deal uh, where, you know, I've seen guys make a couple hundred on a, on a flip like that. So. Wow. Cool. You could do really well with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm getting kind of a better grasp on how, how the whole note thing works. So, um, <laughs> so la- last question on that then I got is when you buy notes, do you have to have all of your own cash or do you, I mean, like, can you get partners? Can you raise money? How does that all work? No, you, you bring up a good point. Like we started out in the beginning when we started our company with our own money and then quickly ran it, you know, you didn't have enough money to keep going. Right. And we would use our savings and HELOCs and IRA accounts. And then we formed an LLC and bought that way. But then we started raising other people's money. And really most of the loans we buy are with other people's money today and, and have literally built this whole monster of a company with other people's money. And the returns are pretty well, you know, they're pretty good returns and you're able to pay them a nice return and keep things moving, keep uh, the velocity going, you know, so cool. we've done really well with that. So, well, yeah, oh, that's great. It, Let, let's it's just like, that. it's just like commercial real estate. Like when I first started raising money, it was for commercial real estate. And, um, you know, how many deals could you do if you had an unlimited supply of money is really what it comes down to. Well, and that's, and, that's the problem that, that most investors get to at, at a certain point yeah. is, you know, hey, I've run out of money. Now what? And and uh, I think we we definitely want to talk about that um, from from here on. If we if we could do that, Dave. Sure. When it comes to hiring, you can't afford to wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest stay. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing or two about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with a reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com backslash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com backslash biggerpockets. 
No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make your moves count. Bought a rental? That's a move. Made some serious stock gains? That's a move. Quit your job to go full-time on your side hustle? That's a move. Relocated for a fresh start? Okay, that's literally a move. Your moves made a big difference in your life last year. Now it's time to make the most of your moves. Whether you moved on from a job, made moves in your own business, did some side hustling, or house flipped your way to financial freedom, TurboTax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction that you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax. Make your moves. TurboTax will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Sure. Uh, so why would, you know, obviously that's why somebody would raise capital, right? They've expended all their available working capital uh, either into, into deals or they don't have it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, where do they get the capital from? Well, I mean, it, you know, I think of when I first started raising capital, it was through mostly through networking groups. It's re- it was really from the people in my cell phone, literally. You know, I would start it out and I would do, you know, I used to do, um, well, there's a couple ways. One is to teach it, teach raising capital or teach the kind of investing you're doing. And then when people see what you're doing, they go, oh, I want to get involved. Uh, and I would, I would uh, tag team off a lot of IRA companies. Because about, I'd say, over 30% of the capital we raise is from retirement accounts. So, And then I used to do a lot of charity work. You know, if you volunteer in some charities, a lot of the investors are accredited that donate to charities. So That's it's a, a, a good unique, idea. It's a unique way to, and, and it's a good cause, right? And yeah. <laughs> um, when I first started raising capital for commercial deals, I was doing it for another company. So I actually learned their techniques by working for them. So I went to work for a company that raised money. So, I mean, that's how I did it. I'm not saying it's the only way, but uh, they're just some ideas. But when I look back at where my investors come from today, I think like 46% from referral, maybe 11% family. I think 3.5% were friends. And most of it, close to 38% was networking. Yeah, that's So just, it's just, that's cool. you know. Um, so well, you gotta have a you gotta have a good reputation too. If you're some slimy investor, nobody's gonna invest with you. So you have to have a decent reputation and things like that. Well, you said something interesting earlier that that you can teach. Like if if you want to raise money, a good way to do it is to teach what you know um, to local people. Chris Clothier talked about that in his podcast episode. Um, I think it was a, a couple weeks ago, and he just talked about how when uh, I think it was his dad started out, they had seven guys in a conference room, and he just started a local RIA, and you know a few years later they had three hundred some people going there, and it was one of their main lead generators. So, um, yeah, I think that's awesome. Well, the other thing is if you start the group, it's a great way because you're considered somewhat of an expert because you're running the group. Or we used to hold investor Q and A sessions, and we would invite people out to you know, the local restaurant and hold a meeting and answer questions and, you know, buy some drinks and hors d'oeuvres and, and talk about the, you know, the real estate project or the note project that we were working on and raise money that way. But you're right. If you're teaching it, you're not soliciting money, like yeah. from the SEC point of view, where you're out there with unaccredited investors and you're soliciting money and you're getting yourself in trouble. 
Um, it's a great way to do it through teaching, like you said. Well, let's talk about accredited investors a little bit. There's been a little bit about uh, that out in the news uh, lately, and and uh, I think a lot of people don't fully understand what an accredited investor is. So, you know, what what's the definition? Who's an accredited investor? Well, an accredited investor is basically a high net worth individual. Uh, the IRS definition is someone who makes two hundred thousand a year if they're single, three hundred thousand a year if you're married or you have a million dollars in net assets, not counting your primary residence, and that you've done it for the last two years and you plan on doing it for the next year or two. You've done so what? That you've made that kind of money. Okay. So, so it's, you're pretty well off and they, well, they consider that well off. Yeah. And that if you invest in this uh, particular investment, this private placement, then you're at your own risk. And if you lost your money, they don't feel too bad for you. Right, yeah. You know, because rich people could lose their money, and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the irony is anybody could have a securities license, and they could sell you, I don't know, GM stock, and you could lose all your money, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know how much sense that makes, but that's the, that's the rules, and I play the game, right? So. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, so so we've got these accredited investors, and essentially – uh, the advantage of being an accredited investor, besides the fact that you've got more cash than the, the rest of the world, is that uh, you uh, that companies can can now market to you and 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 uh, solicit you and essentially you know sell these services to you that they couldn't sell to the average Joe uh, because again, like you said, the government assumes that uh, these guys have a higher risk tolerance. They're smarter because they're richer. That is that is that a good way of putting it. That, that's exactly what they think. They're there to protect the little guy. Um, that's what the SEC is for, is to protect the small-time investor. Um, but, you know, you just brought up a point about the recent changes where you can, you can actually do advertising and market uh, to the general public now for your investment. But they did make it a little cumbersome. So they're making, if I do general solicitation, to an audience of mixed company. And by mixed company, I mean accredited and unaccredited. Um, if I bring in an investor from that event, I have to screen that investor a lot more diligently now. I have to actually have proof that they have that kind of income. Whereas if I just went to an, a room full of accredited, I don't have to do that. So well, not much has changed, really. Well, let me, let me ask you this, because you know I, I know... You'll see a lot of people come out who don't know anything about anything, and you know they just came, usually they just came out of some guru class or some some kind of nonsense, and and suddenly they're advertising all over the web and all over the place, you know, mm -hmm. seeking financing for this, and they're just doing a general solicitation. That's that's not okay, correct? That's taboo. Yes, um, and in fact, uh, years ago uh, I had a, I didn't even have that on a website. I just had I forget what I had, and. Uh, it literally cost us $10,000 in Ohio to take down our website um, because uh, uh, the regulators on the state level are more strict than the federal level because most of us are too small. Right. We're going after the big fish. But you're right. Websites are one of the most dangerous places. I wasn't even soliciting anybody. It's just it, it mentioned investors somewhere on my website, and, and that was just enough to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that, that exists uh, in the startup yeah. space and in the notes and in, in fundraising space of, of any type. Uh, for example, if bigger pockets were to go out and raise money for, you know, say we needed venture money, if I would, I, I couldn't just start advertising that on bigger pockets. No. 
because uh, no, you know, well the, now they're they're changing the, the rule that right. you can advertise today but right. even though you advertise if someone comes in now it's the duties on you to be diligent in the screening of that person to see if they're accredited or not and that they're qualified so you the, the marketing has changed but you know what the rules there's no case history right yet you right. know so we, we're, we're treading on you know, dangerous ground in some ways, because do you want to be the first case? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm kind of sticking to my old ways of raising money, because if I deal with just the accredited, which I've gotten used to doing, um, I don't have those issues. I don't have to verify their incomes. I don't have to say, let me see your tax returns. Because for a lot of accredited investors, that's cumbersome yeah. to have to produce, you know, my tax, my 60 page tax return to you. Uh, to invest in your $25,000 project that you, you know, it's just, it's yeah. overburdensome sometimes. So yeah. I don't know that it's going to work the way they think it is. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a real cynic of, of, uh, of what the government is, is planning and what everybody thinks. Brandon and I talk a lot about this and, and, uh, you know, there's all these companies popping up that, that are all about crowdfunding and, and raising money. And, and everybody thinks that the government's going to allow, you know, you, grandma to to go out and you know be solicited and and jump in and buy shares of 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 somebody's real estate deal i i kind of think the government's going to put a, a clamp on that because you know there's so much screening that needs to be done i think i i see it as they allow it on the stock market because there's so much more information about these companies on the market but you know when it's yes. a, when it's an individual property if it's just you know, you're trying to sell shares in an office building down the block. Who's going to vet that deal? You bring up a great point. There's no um, prospectus that's right. drawn up by an ERISA attorney right. for your little project, you know, like it is on the stock market. So it, it, it is a different uh, vibe as far as what that investment is. But I think people are better off focusing on the accredited investors. Um one one thing that's worked well for me is I'm, I'm members of a couple CEO groups where I'm outside my real estate realm. I know this is counterintuitive because I've always been in a million real estate groups, but I actually joined a group where all the other CEOs aren't in real estate and they're all well to do. They all have like five to $10 million companies. And it's like EO and stuff like that. Yeah. And you can meet some really interesting people and get new ideas for your business and but you also build relationships with people that are accredited and, and next thing you know, they're investing in your projects. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's another good strategy, you know, for raising capital and meeting new people. Right on. Right. Well, we're, we're starting to run out of a little time here. Why don't we jump to uh, our, our favorite new feature of the show here, our fire round, fire round, fire round. Yeah. So, Let's jump in. You've got lots of experience across. You know, you were an agent. You were a property manager. You, you've you've been there. You're the you're the note guy now. Um, I'm going to start with: Should a real estate investor be an agent? I don't see any harm in it. I mean, I was an agent and an investor for years. Um, in fact, most of the clients that I dealt with were relieved that I had knowledge of the business and the paperwork. They actually liked the idea. That. So as long as you disclose it, I think it's disclose, disclose, disclose. It's never been a problem for me in over 25 years that I was an agent. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, uh, so that one was actually my question. I just, I was curious what you thought. <laughs> the rest of these, <laughs> the rest of these all come from, 
Well, for those who've heard my, I think I've said my story before. I've taken the class twice and I haven't actually got my license yet. And I, I still kick myself for that. So uh, I will get my license. We're holding you accountable, Brandon. I know you are. You are. (laughs) It'll save you some money. That's for sure. It will save me money. I know that I I spend a lot. I I give a lot of money to my, uh, my realtor. You know what the biggest advantage is for me today with being a realtor? What's that? Tax taxes. I can have unlimited losses. So a normal person can only have up to $25,000 in losses. So if you have a lot of rental property and you want, you exceed that 25,000 in losses and in my note business today, look at my biggest problem is I generate too much revenue. So I love still being an agent to take advantage of unlimited real estate losses to offset my earned income. That's because of the professional status. Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. So, and I've been through audits and they do want to see that you're a professional and that uh, real, you know, real estate investors. So they do want proof. They were very big on that through my audit. Okay. So that's good to know. Keep that in mind. And right. it came out alive. It came out alive. Came out alive. Yes. All right. So the rest of these all came from the bigger pockets forums. So, uh, at yeah. biggerpockets.com slash forums. All right. So, uh, can you invest in notes from overseas? Yes. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- there are anti-money laundering laws. And if, if we have a couple rules that we deal with, like I have a gentleman out of Australia that buys notes from us. And what he does is he has a Florida LLC and he has some type of a exchange bank that's located in New York and California that will transfer his money from Australia to the States through a U.S. bank. And if the money's coming through a U.S. bank, it, it it gets through that any money money laundering thing. Um, whereas if you know you're taking money from a note, like we don't sell notes to someone in Nigeria or Libya who doesn't have an entity or uh, comes through a U.S. bank. You follow me there? So that entity Just, would need to be in the states. Yeah. Now that's our company rule. That's not necessarily. Will there be companies that would sell to a foreign uh, entity or person? I'm sure there is. But we're dealing with people's socials, and we feel a moral obligation not to give a borrower. I don't want to give a U.S. borrower's info to a foreign person or entity without being able to vet them, without being able to know that their money's coming through the states through the proper channels. That's our company policy. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I don't know that that's a rule nationally, but there are anti-money laundering rules. Okay. Yeah, and and to anybody listening, these are these are reasons why you want a very good attorney and a very good accountant when you do anything in real estate. Uh, you know, you, a lot of people think you could just jump in and you know, hey, I'm going to start being an investor and it's going to cost me nothing. If you don't put the money up for a good lawyer and a good accountant to CYA, uh, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what is uh, what's considered normal wear and tear on a rental? What's normal? <laughs> um, I've never had a rental like that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no uh, such thing as normal, right? I'm usually putting three kitchens in in ten years. Now, uh, normal wear, normal wear and tear. Um, I think if it's more than three to five years and you need paint and carpet, I think that's normal. I mean, if you get to where it's, you know, they live there a year and you need to replace the carpet and you need to paint the place, I think that's abnormal. Yeah. What do you, What do you guys think? I I think I agree. I have, yeah, I repaint system. way too much. I mean, a lot of my tenants are just, I don't know if it's, well, I don't know what it is, but I repaint way too much. You shouldn't be painting every year. That's, that's, that's what not... I feel like I do on some of my units. I paint every year. 
you are a sucker. <laughs> well, I don't, well, yeah. I'll oh. tell you this. Sometimes if a tenant's there more than five years, I'll send a painter in yeah. to paint, to repaint for them. And, and it, I think I get retention out of that. I do. Yeah. yeah. I think that and replacing carpets after X number of years is, is reasonable. But re, you know, I mean, if, if your tenant's staying there and you, you I can't imagine repainting a, a, a unit that somebody's been sitting in unless it's been, uh, you know, quite a few years. I wonder, though, how much that has to do with because I live in the rainiest part of the country. And so maybe it's just naturally dirtier here. I don't know. Like there's always everything's wet and kids are touching the walls. I don't know. I should find out if if my if that's normal. Your tenants need to get a sponge (laughs) and put it on the walls and clean instead of painting. That's true. And I I do clean a lot of walls. All right. So that, that actually leads into the next fire round question is what is your favorite brand of paint to use on rentals? Um, well, I used to be a painting contractor and my oldest son is, and we use mostly Sherwin Williams products and it's, they kind of have a monopoly on the market. It's between them and Home Depot typically, uh, where we get some of our products these days. Cool. How do you find a good handyman? Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) most, most of the time through my property management company today, they usually refer one to me. So that's the easy way out. But a good handyman is probably one of the toughest hires there is. Yeah. Um, usually I would start out with someone who was a carpenter that was pretty good with paint and things like that, spackling and drywall, because then he could do the bulk of it. But how do you get somebody that can be a good plumber, electrician, and all-in-one? It's tough. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Very tough. Um, what's your favorite kind of flooring to put in a rental? <laughs> My favorite type of flooring? Oh, uh, jeez. <laughs> Probably Mexican tile with a drain in the floor so I could just power wash the unit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> I like that. Don't you one. wish you could be like a restaurant, right? You yeah. just go in and squeegee it. And uh, next, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, I, I do like the hardwood sometimes. Like in, uh, well, in the Philadelphia area, we have a lot of uh, older row homes that have hardwood and you can go in and refinish them. And then people put area rugs and yeah. you don't get into that much carpet. You know, but we we do have ones with a lot of carpet too, but they tend to beat them to death, you know. Yeah. I, I like the hardwood when you when you can refinish it, it's awesome. So. All right. So uh here's a fun one. Bed bugs. Who's responsible? You or your dirty, disgusting <laughs> tenant? <laughs> wow. They um well I know my management company puts a clause in for bed bugs that it's on them that there was no bed bugs when they moved in. Um, but I also have, a, um, I run a drug and alcohol recovery house where we do get bed bugs occasionally and we actually just routinely go in and treat the place. Yeah. We just continuously treat it. Yeah. And I mean, no insult to all the New Yorkers who are putting up with the, uh, the bed bug plague that's, uh, striking <laughs> back home. So no disrespect to, to everybody. Well, a- well, I, I will give you a tip. Um, they have these bed bug covers, that work very well in protecting the box springs and the mattresses. And they're, they're not cheap. They're like 60 to $80. But we put them on all the beds, and uh, that's where they live. You know, It, it cuts down on it a lot. Yeah. Well, they live inside the cover. So you're sleeping well, on top of this bed with the bugs like, <laughs> festering in this cover below. That's kind of nasty. <laughs> sure, but the, the, the cover keeps them from being able to live in the box springs, and it keeps it protects the box spring from having to like throw it out or burn it or whatever you know right, so. right there's just nothing pleasant about 
bed bugs and yeah. no good answers, I guess. They are <laughs> definitely the toughest. They're one of the toughest things I've ever encountered. And I've had everything from uh, bats to raccoons to you name it. Nice. That's uh, that's awesome. Well, cool. Well, listen, we're we're as as we uh, as we come to the close of of this one, uh, we're we're gonna jump right into our famous four. I was I was trying really hard to harmonize. All right. I, ironically, Brandon plays guitar and sings. I'm not quite sure why he's incapable of, of you know, sounding. Yeah, I'll careful. I'll bust out my guitar on one of these podcasts. Yeah, you watch out. Nice, do it. Nice. Punk rock. All right. Um, Josh, you want to take the first one? Yes. Yes. So here's Famous Four. Why don't we start with your favorite real estate book? Gosh. Um, is it okay to have a famous real estate book that's not just about real estate? A favorite? Sure. Absolutely. One of, one of my favorite books was uh, Missed Fortune 101 by Doug Andrew, which is more of a planning, you know, Wealth building, but it involves. It talks a lot about real estate in it too. But it's about re-leveraging and being your own bank and things like that. So, yeah, that so one of my favorites. So, would that qualify as, as your favorite non-real estate business book as well? Um, I think my favorite um, non-real estate book would be like Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, which is like growing your business. Is what that book's about. And it's by uh, Vern Harnish. Um, it's sort of like a an e-myth type book where, you know, building a business. Um, but I, are you looking for, I know the real estate book. No, we're know. looking for not, yeah, we're, we're perfect, man. It's, uh, and we're, we're just, you know, we're always trying to, to expose uh, the listeners to, to new ideas and, and new books and new things for them to check out. And ironically, most of the recommendations over our, our, our shows are, you know, they, they tend to come back up and, and it's cool that you've got a couple new suggestions. So, uh, I think people will <laughs> oh. be uh, interested to, to check those out. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, what about hobbies? Hobbies? Um, I'm what a weird guy. <laughs> well, I like to play chess. Nice. I like, I like to play table tennis and I like to play around with, um, lendingclub.com. It's like my new Facebook. Nice. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you could trade loans on there on a website, and I—I I don't know. I'm just a weird guy. <laughs> table tennis, table toys, table games, and lending club. Got it. <laughs> nice. <Awesome. laughs> and we're you know we're actually going to be talking to somebody in one of the upcoming podcast episodes about lending club. So we're going to talk about how to use that. It's phenomenal. So, it's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah so a lot of my staff do it. Yeah. That's oh, cool. cool. And we'll, we'll we'll post a link in the show notes uh, as well uh, to to lending club so people can check that out. Um, but uh, Brandon, we wanna you wanna yeah. take the last one here? Yep. Final question for the day: What sets apart successful investors, in your opinion, from those who just come and go? I think it's got to be that I've seen over the years just studying successful people. I think it's goal setting and taking action. Um, you know, being able to take a risk, not being afraid of failure, being creative, being resilient, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, good, good, awesome. Nice. Awesome. Well, Dave, listen, I, I, I uh, definitely appreciate uh, you coming on the show. We, I, I think we certainly got into, into a, uh, a few topics that – uh, might require additional assistance, and and I want to encourage our uh, our listeners to to jump on our show notes uh, at biggerpockets.com/slash/show28. And if they uh, if they've got any questions, they can ask you them there. And of course, you'll you'll jump in and be there to help out. Um, otherwise, 
anybody listening, you guys can find Dave on on Bigger Pockets. He's got a profile. Connect with him. Uh, definitely uh, be sure to check out his company, PPR Note Company. And uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. And of course, Dave, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. All right, everybody. And that was our show with Dave Van Horn. Uh, I know that there was a ton of new stuff in this episode. And uh, your mind is probably running at 100 miles an hour like mine is. And, and I know Brandon's is because he can't quite keep up. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, nice. it's all good. Yeah, you like that? Um, no, there was a lot there. I know I'm going to have to go back and listen again uh, to, to pick up some stuff. So, so uh, don't feel bad. There's, there's definitely a lot of uh, content and, and some, some fairly sophisticated topics there. Uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, really quick. Uh, before we go, uh, just want to mention that uh, we're now up to 338 uh, ratings on iTunes for the show, 328 five stars, and 212 customer reviews. So uh, if you haven't left one yet, please, please take the time to leave us a review on iTunes and, and share a, a rating, uh, an honest rating. Hopefully five stars is honest, but uh, leave an honest rating for us. And... Uh, you know that would be eternally uh, helpful to us in in spreading the word about uh, this show and what we're doing here. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, if you're interested in the topic of notes or or raising money or anything like that, definitely make sure you jump on Bigger Pockets. Check out the Bigger Pockets blog, our forums, and and uh, get involved and and get active there because that's so key. Of course, if you have any questions for Dave. Um, Make sure to leave your questions in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show28. Uh, Dave will be there to take all your questions and, and answer them. Or you could uh, connect with him on the site. And uh, that's really about it. Make sure you're following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash biggerpockets. And if you don't have an account on our site, you, you're definitely missing out. Uh, make sure you join us at, at biggerpockets.com. Uh, come get involved. Uh, join up. There's there's so much cool stuff happening there. So many great people that you can connect with, and uh, you know we hope uh, we hope you'll join us and and be a part of of the community. I know that Brandon, uh, you 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 are one of our success stories, and and just being involved yep. uh, was was so valuable to you, wasn't it? It definitely was. Yeah. I mean, I always encourage people like just jump in and engage. The ones that engage are the ones that succeed. So do it. Yeah. And, and one last quick, 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 quick thing here. Uh, just a reminder for those of you who haven't had a chance to, uh, to, to learn about it. We actually just released uh, this amazing, amazing fix and flip house flipping uh, calculator analysis tool. It's, it's unbelievable. The thing is so valuable. And uh, you, you can uh, learn more about it at biggerpockets.com slash flip dash analysis flip dash analysis and uh, there you'll see a video with a tutorial uh, you'll learn all about it see the reports it produces and and as a new new investor or advanced investor this thing will really help you to evaluate your your house flips Brandon was was fundamental in its creation uh, he's done a phenomenal job and we've had great feedback from from uh, many many of our house flippers about uh, their thoughts on it so definitely be sure to check that out that's it. Enough announcements. I am Josh Dorkin. Signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. 
If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Here to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step -step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enrollme today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enrollme. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.